Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in World Affairs. I'm your host, Anna Levy. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Lindsay McCoy about her new book, No Such Thing as a Free Gift, The Gates Foundation and the Price of Philanthropy, published by Verso Books in 2015. Dr. McGoy is a senior lecturer in the Department of Sociology at the University of Essex and a co-director of its Center for Research in Economic Sociology and Innovation. No Such Thing as a Free Gift explores the history, political influence, and economic origins of a new trend in philanthropy, which combines market-based principles with charitable aspirations, focusing on the Gates Foundation for its reach in global health, agriculture, education, and for the mere global recognition of its name. Hi, Lindsay. Welcome to New Books in World Affairs. Thank you so much for joining today. Um, I want to start, I really appreciated reading, reading your book, and I would say the first thing which struck me, which I'd like to ask you about, is that so much of the global discussion on philanthropy today is focused on outcomes and innovation. Um, I'd like to know what led you to write a book that looks at philanthropy more from, from a political economy and historical perspective, number one, and why, why did you choose the Gates Foundation in particular? Thanks, Anna. It's great to be here. That's an excellent question. I did feel that there was a real dearth of attention to trying to understand how philanthropy today sits within a larger discussion looking at shifts in the broader political economy that were leading to a lot of wealth stratification and to a return of levels of inequality between the rich and the poor that we hadn't seen in countries like the UK where I currently live since Victorian times. So I wanted to situate a discussion of philanthropy next to a a more broad discussion surrounding growing wealth divides. And my main interest was in trying to understand a question that's not being asked a lot and which we still don't have clear evidence surrounding the response to. And that question is, Does philanthropy actually help to narrow wealth gaps, as we presume it it would do? We presume that the rich voluntarily surrendering a portion of their incomes or their wealth would help to level the playing field and to lead to a diminishing of the gap between the rich and the poor. But the question I wanted to ask is, do we really have good evidence that that's the case? And if philanthropy isn't helping to narrow wealth gaps, might it actually be exacerbating them? Could it be that large-scale giving actually helps to compound 
some of the very problems that philanthropists purport to be ameliorating through their large gift giving. The reason that I look to the Gates Foundation is because there'd been very, very little social science work investigating the emergence of this very powerful actor. And I wanted to understand how is the Gates Foundation distinctive from earlier philanthropic organizations that are often familiar to families as a sort of household name that are that are you, you would hear a lot about over the past, really the cent- past century, and and those organizations are the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, and the Carnegie Corporation, which is uh, the term for the organization that expends the wealth that was bequested by Andrew Carnegie, the leading steel baron of the late 19th century. So I wanted to understand how does the Gates Foundation differ from some of these earlier large organizations. And that was the impetus behind the book. I investigated it through a number of interviews with different stakeholders at places like the World Health Organization. I had some interviews uh, carried out by phone with people at the Gates Foundation, but I mostly wanted to investigate how do other major organizations or institutions that are increasingly having to work with the Gates Foundation in order to meet different social policy objectives, places like, aside from the, the World Health Organization, I spoke with people at um, places like Medicine Sans Frontier, major humanitarian organizations that are, in some respects, happy about the arrival of a major benefactor on the scene, but also, in other respects, a little bit concerned about the growing clout of this private organization, which has such a strong influence over deciding policies in the area of global health, as well as other areas where the Gates Foundation expends its money towards, like public education in the United States. Great. So let's get right into into the weeds of the book um, with some of the terms that pepper almost every almost every chapter. Uh, you explore them a bit in the beginning, um, talking about philanthrocapitalism, social innovation, social entrepreneur entrepreneurship. These are just a few of the terms that are now somewhat inseparable from global philanthropy, um, Gates Foundation or otherwise. Um, At various points, you touch on how these terms not only differ from the historical language used to advance social change agendas, uh, but also how they mean really different things to, to different people right now. So I'd like to know if you can just tease out about what what do these terms mean um, in 2016 and and how how are they used? How are they different from historical concepts of social change, social justice or social movements? Sure. You've seen we've seen in the philanthropic sector the emergence of a whole host of new phrases, new catchy terms new, some might call them rather clunky neologisms, but however you term these phrases, there's no doubt that we are seeing a flourishing of individual catchphrases for trying to encapsulate the new philanthropy. Things stem from philanthrocapitalism, which is a term that was coined in 2006, to social entrepreneurship, to philanthropreneurialism, to social innovation, to impact investing. And as I talk about in the book, in some ways, 
these words are used in such a almost licentious manner in such an almost elastic way that they're thrown at any different initiative as if somehow the terms help to characterize an initiative, but actually sometimes the meaning behind these terms is much more vague and unclear than proponents of these new trends suggest. So a key aim of the book, as you point out, was simply trying to look into the history of how these terms emerged, how they've been defined, and in what ways do they mark out a contrast from earlier understandings of how philanthropy occurs and what its impact is. So let's start with philanthrocapitalism. Philanthrocapitalism is a term that was coined by Matthew Bishop, who works at The Economist magazine. And he later expanded on the term in a 2008 book co-authored with a fellow author that was called Philanthrocapitalism, How the Rich Can Save the World. Now, in that book and in some of their online material promoting the book, they define the term in a number of ways, but they essentially suggest that today's philanthropists are trying for the first time to harness the rhetoric and the organizing principles of the corporate sector in order to make philanthropy more efficient and cost-effective, as well as impactful. And then they also suggest that the term is meant to encapsulate the ways that, in their view, capitalism itself, by fostering a level of business dynamism, by creating opportunities for business growth, is a naturally philanthropic system of wealth organization, of, of business organizing. So they say that capitalism, a system oriented around the pursuit of business initiatives for profit and for personal gain, as well as a system characterized by private ownership of goods, because those are the two ways that capitalism is generally defined. They suggest that those two components speak to the ways that capitalism is a naturally altruistic phenomenon, a naturally philanthropic phenomenon, because it helps to harness business opportunities and to disseminate those opportunities through societies. Finally, although they slightly shied away from this point in a second edition of the book that was brought out after 2008, initially when these authors were speaking about philanthrocapitalism, they spoke about the ways that we're seeing the emergence of for-profit forms of philanthropic giving, where no longer must philanthropy be defined as, as a system of the surrender of wealth that's premised on the idea that no, no financial return can accrue to the individual giver. That's typically how philanthropy is distinguished from business practices. And the authors have talked about the ways that that distinction is collapsing as today's brand, uh, today's breed and generation of philanthropists increasingly try to harness the profit motive in order to give in a way that might not necessarily be non-profit. So the ways that people are trying to deliberately marry for-profit objectives with, ben with initiatives aimed at fostering collective social welfare. So if we look at those three things individually, a key aim of my book is to talk about what's really new here about each of those three phenomena, three different aspects of this phenomenon of philanthrocapitalism, and what's not new. 
And I suggest that that historical contextualization is very important because it helps to explain and to tease out the relationship between philanthropy and the larger, wider political economy. Because if actually there's quite a lot of similarities between the new gift-giving, the new philanthropy, and older forms of philanthropy, if actually there's possibly more similarities than differences, then it means that the purported claim of the new philanthropist to be solving the world's problems in an unprecedented and novel way are then a little bit suspicious. And it also speaks to the ways that earlier forms of philanthropic giving were not sufficient on their own to make sure that the most vulnerable in a society was adequately uh, protected by the state. The reason why philanthropy began to, in some ways, lose favor in the 1930s and 40s in the United States is because charities were drawing up as a result of the financial crisis of the Great Depression years. And we came to recognize policy officials and elected representatives like Roosevelt began to realize that you needed to have packages and and forms of social security that were guaranteed by the state rather than be given on a whim. And that history is really important to recognize because it speaks to the problem of today's philanthropists often ignoring that wider political context. So to go back to the three aspects of what's novel or not, Bishop and Green argue that the new philanthrocapitalism is distinctive because for the first time foundations are trying to be more business-oriented in how they run their businesses, in how they run their charities and their foundations, demanding more evidence of impact, being more rigorous about reporting results, trying to apply a certain evidence base to their giving. What I point out in the book is that as laudable as that goal might be, it's certainly not new to the new philanthropists. It was a major objective of donors like Andrew Carnegie, and John D. Rockefeller, who were the first major large-scale donors in the United States and who established their foundations at the turn of the 20th century, they were explicit about the desire to apply some of the bureaucratic principles of large, their large corporate organizations to the realm of giving. And they used words like efficiency for talking about the aims and objectives of their philanthropic bequests. The second point about the idea that philanthrocapitalism harnesses the idea that capitalism is naturally philanthropic, again, I suggest that is not in any way nearly as novel or as unprecedented as Bishop and Green argue. I suggest in the book that that notion, however contentious as it may be, hails back to really the founding forefathers of modern political economy, people like Bernard Mandeville and Adam Smith, who throughout the 18th century talked about the way that private private initiatives, uh, profit-seeking for one's personal gain, could lead to collective social benefits. This in some ways is the central interpretation of Smith's notion of the invisible hand in his work, The Wealth of Nations. So since the start of modern political economy, which is really rooted in the writings of people like Manville and Smith, who were early political economists, 
writing throughout the 18th century, Manfield towards the start of the 18th century, Smith towards the end. That's actually a notion that's central to modern eco economics, the idea that wealth spreads collective benefits. What I point out in the book is that there's a, a failure to recognize that that notion was subjected to a very vociferous debate from the 18th century onwards. So in the 19th century, this notion that private risk-taking, private profit-making naturally leads to collective benefits was resoundly challenged by people like Karl Marx, as well as uh, thinkers who weren't necessarily Marxists in their orientation, but were very skeptical of the idea that private markets, when left unrestricted by regulations of the state, naturally led to collective prosperity. And I suggest that today's 21st century philanthrocapitalists are in some ways echoing and parroting the ideas of people like Smith and Mandeville without acknowledging this historical roots sufficiently and without acknowledging the other side of the coin, the many contestations of whether or not wealth that's left unregulated actually leads to collective prosperity because the key criticism of capitalism is not that it's not dynamic. Most people agree that it is. It's whether or not it's collectively beneficial for wider societies when people don't have access to ownership over the means of production. And I argue that that criticism of capitalism is left out of the rhetoric, the very self-satisfied rhetoric of today's philanthropists. Let me end with the last component that Bishop and Green suggest is a novel aspect of philanthrocapitalism. And again, it's this aspect that in some ways they seem to shy away from in some writing, but certainly it's becoming a, a hallmark feature of the new philanthropy is this way that people are trying to marry for-profit objectives with initiatives aimed at improving collective welfare. So this idea that you can unproblematically chime or combine profit-making with philanthropic gift-giving. This, I suggest, is really the only aspect of the new philanthropy that is genuinely new. The other aspects, applying a corporate mentality to gift-giving, not at all unique to the today's donors, but unique to the turn of the 20th century when Carnegie and Rockefeller set up their trusts. But this new marriage of for-profit investing, for personal gain, mixed with calling your acts philanthropic, this is an entirely new phenomenon that we have not seen in the past because in the past there were provisions put in place in nations like the UK and the US to try to guard against private profiteering from philanthropic gifts. I think one of the things that, that ends up being tricky about looking at the role of the Gates Foundation or other philanthropic institutions in, in the global economy, in specific sectors, in the debate on, you know, will the world be uh, governed with socialist principles, capitalist principles, what are they, how are they different? Part of what's tricky about it is that uh, philanthropic institutions now end up playing at sometimes the role of the private sector. Uh, it, you know, philanthropy in and of itself, it's an industry. Other times they're playing the role of government, substituting public services, public service delivery, policy making even. Um, and yet at other times, uh, 
global philanthropy is also tied very closely or seen as representing civil society uh, because grant money goes to civil society organizations or because philanthropic institutions themselves are not actually governments. So what I want to ask you is is how the Gates Foundation um, or sort of global philanthropy in general, where it does play each of these individual roles, um, are they distinct from one another? And and how is that how is that making this question of of regulating safe philanthropy or even having a discussion about regulation? How is that complicated by by the fact that philanthropies are playing all three of these roles? That's a really great question. What philanthropy is a topic that is so ripe for sociological investigation because. As, a, as, a, as an entity, as a phenomenon, it does raise so many interesting questions through its sheer terminological elasticity. So let me, um, let me repeat that phrase again because I really think it's an important way to try to conceptualize both the power of foundations as well as their insulation from, in some ways, both certainly public scrutiny where because of the salience, the the high regard in which most members of the public hold people who relinquish any part of their wealth, it seems um, ungrateful, it seems uncharitable to ever criticize large-scale charity. So even if you try to instantiate new regulatory measures, that made it possible for different elected officials, say, to um, legally call to account foundation activities, it's very likely that all sorts of attempts to restrain a foundation would be met with a lot of public rebuke or public uh, displeasure because people see it as an ultimate threat to individual liberty to suggest that a person who's made wealth can't disperse it however he or she wants. And you hear this comment come up time and time and again if you try to talk about some of the disadvantages of private giving. And the refrain that you constantly encounter is, well, it's his money, he can do what he wants with it. And this is problematic for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is that it's his money, he can do what he wants with it. Well, what if an individual simply wanted to buy a very large private jet and land it in the backyard of a primary school that was trying to educate children and say children were actually harmed by the landing of that jet in the backyard. There seems to be an apparent or an evident scope for criticizing the private action. But when a private action is rhetorically presented in a way that presumes that the action is selfless and is oriented at helping others rather than oneself, suddenly the legitimacy of criticizing the action is gone, even though the action itself might have been just as devastating as an action that was clearly a vanity project from the outset. So the sheer act of proclaiming that an activity is philanthropic has the normative effect of perverting the possibility of criticism, of of thwarting the possibility of public debate. And I'm fascinated by how that very nominal sort of situation acts, where the pure act of naming 
an activity philanthropic fosters a sort of public response that would have been incredibly separate if the rhetoric surrounding the private action was different. Where you saw a great example of this was when Mark Zuckerberg, in December 2015, just a few months ago, announced that he was surrendering about 99% of his fortune to charity. And what he had actually done in that week was, was not relinquish anything philanthropically. He had simply set up a new limited liability company controlled by himself and transferred $1 billion worth of Facebook shares to it. Now, it could be very well that in the future, Zuckerberg will part with some of that money and offer it to philanthropic causes. But in the week when he made his announcement, he hadn't actually done anything charitably. He had simply announced that he had. And we took him at face value, and we assumed that the act of naming something as charitable was equivalent to it actually being charitable. And I think that rhetorical power is something that as a sociologist I'm fascinated by and I'm trying to unpack further through, through in ways linking some of the contemporary world's giving to earlier sociological writing on things like charismatic authority, which is a concept that the sociologist Max Weber mm-hmm. developed, as well as work by the sociologist Emil Durkheim, who talked about the distinction between what he called the profane and the sacred. And the profane was the realm of everyday life, of the mundane or the ordinary, whereas the sacred is a realm that he didn't use the term necessarily in a religious way, but he talked about the ways that every culture tends to have... um, a way of sanctifying certain activities in order to have something to cherish or to, to view as honorable or to elevate as a template for how one might want to live one's life. And in contemporary societies, even secular ones, a phenomenon that has taken on a sacred perception that is that is seen as beyond the scope of any form of scrutiny or criticism is the is the realm of philanthropy. So today philanthropy is situated in that sacred realm that in overtly religious societies um, other more 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 things associated with say a a a a benefactor, God himself, would have been seen as sacrilegious. To criticize God is seen as blasphemous. Today, it's almost as if these large funders are God-like themselves because of their seeming enormous sacrifice that they make by parting with these massive fortunes. And to criticize their actions seems like an affront to our popular understandings of what is the what is what is sacred about humanity that's a it's a it's a good entry point for for a question about the role of the media um, one thing you tend to focus on in various chapters but especially in the chapter on on the ted heads um, is that in the age of, of social media digital identities storytelling um, you essentially show in a way or, or talk about publicity and, and public relations as a kind of currency um, in the competition for philanthropic resources and, and all different kinds of resources focused on on social change. Uh, you talk about storytelling, about self-praise, self-reporting, and even and even the, the, the public or charitable the provision of public or charitable goods. Um, 
as being something that, that can happen just from being socially connected. So social capital, social connections, these are now proxies uh, for doing good work. Can you talk a little bit on one hand about, about how the role of self-praise has changed um, in, in the, the industry, I'll call it, of, of social innovation, social enterprise, whether it's you know philanthropically driven or not, and also why why the media doesn't doesn't play a similar role that say it would in covering government. Uh, you know, we see media as providing very clear checks and balances on on the role of the public sector. Um, and, you know, additionally on the private sector where possible, but in the private sector you have market mechanisms that in some ways serve to serve the same purpose. Uh, you know, it, it, does this thing work, yes or no? People buy it, yes or no? And, and there's something missing missing in the world of philanthropy. So maybe you could talk a little bit about those two notions against one another. Excellent. One of the most interesting things about some of these large actors these new foundations, is that to a large degree, they punch above their weight. They receive more public acclaim than I think is warranted given their comparative contribution to social welfare schemes domestically as well as international aid globally. So if you were to ask any person in the street, they would have a very good sense of what the Gates Foundation is, what it does, And a lot of them would suggest that the Gates Foundation is plugging the holes created by largely receding non-interventionist states. So we hear time and again that states are relinquishing their overall uh, commitments to United Nations targets on overseas development assistance. So the UN generally says that most nations should try to commit about anywhere up to 1% of their gross domestic product towards overseas development aid. So the actual target that the UN has said is something like 0.8% of the overall gross domestic product. Now, few wealthy nations actually do that. So it is true that in some ways states are relinquishing their commitments to UN targets. But even the nations that don't, even say a nation like the United States, which doesn't quite meet that 0.8 target, it still contributes far, far, far more in a financial sum, when it comes to financial sums, to overseas development assistance than the Gates Foundation does, okay? So what the Gates Foundation actually contributes to global health internationally is a tiny drop in the bucket when it comes to what, say, USAID, USAID contributes to overseas development assistance. It's less than what um, the UK's development arms contribute to global health. And yet public perception is, is that the Gates Foundation and Mr. Gates himself personally are almost single-handedly saving the world, okay? And I'm, I'm very intrigued by that mismatch, and that's what I mean when I say that the Gates Foundation punches above its weight, because I think even though in subtle ways that I document throughout the book, the Gates Foundation manages to leverage its comparatively smaller contributions in a way that allows it to exercise disproportionate influence. So because it's not restrained by certain um, stipulations, which, which mean that 
say a member state, for example, when it contributes to the World Health Organization, um, a government, a member government of the World Health Organization is obligated in some way to, to, to direct its funding towards a general pool that the World Health Organization has discretion to use at its at its own priority setting, at, at its own prerogative. The Gates Foundation's contributions can be earmarked for specific causes, and this is how through donating um, still a good deal, but less than cumulative, cumulatively member states give, the Gates Foundation can wield such influence on the WHO. So yes, it gives less, but also too it can leverage its contributions in a way that creates quite large impacts. But, but what's mo more concerning to me than necessarily this distorting of, of priority setting at the bodies that the Gates Foundation collaborates with, it's the fact that in the public's mind, we are currently living in this golden age of philanthropic giving. And, and when you actually look at the figures, that doesn't always add up. Industries are going, growing, individual foundations are proliferating, but what countries give overall as a percentage of their GDP hasn't actually grown that much from the 1970s. And I've talked to media organizations about this. And one leading uh, tech company that I won't name by name because I was asked not to, but I said to this tech publication, I said, you know yourself that governments give a lot more towards overseas development assistance, that they are major players in global governance and that in many ways they are far more powerful than the Gates Foundation, and yet the type of stories that you celebrate tend to be these stories of individual entrepreneurial acumen, of the philanthropist saving the day. I said, why is that? And the individual said to me, he said web traffic, traffic flow. Anytime we publish an article in the Gates Foundation, our web traffic goes through the roof. People want to read stories of heroism. They want to read stories, it seems, of individual sacrifice. And so there's this cyclical self-reinforcing mechanism where the media, which are increasingly funded by these philanthropic actors, even if the, co the, the coverage they offer isn't uniformly positive, they tend to print a disproportionately large number of stories glorifying philanthropic giving in general in comparison to government interventions, whereas the government stories that you read about are more often than not stories of failure rather than success. Let me ask you to talk a little bit about, um, you cover so many different Topics, or, or say, you use a lot of different prisms to examine to examine the Gates Foundation in this book, and, and this conversation clearly uh, is only getting started. Um, as you mentioned, uh, the announcement by by Zuckerberg, and we're going to see more and more of this. So, so the conversation needs to continue happening. What do you see the role as as the people? What is the role of the people inside philanthropic institutions in this conversation? Um, and may I ask how you ended up, uh, you give a lot of really interesting examples, but, but it is also clear that, that it was hard to get inside, or, or perhaps you decided not to go inside the Gates Foundation in depth to solicit sort of perspectives from the inside. So both for the purposes of the book, but also for the purposes of the global conversation, what role do people who are on the inside of these institutions playing, and what role should they be playing? I try 
wanted at a certain point in my research to get closer to actual foundation staff. I was in ongoing conversation with media spokespeople for the foundation from the very beginning of my research onwards. And gradually we got to a point where communication seemed to break down and an early invitation to visit the foundation I pushed for a bit, but it was it was essentially withdrawn. And so I never physically managed to get to the foundation's headquarters in Seattle. And I was only permitted to speak on the record with two employees at the foundation. And then I had a few on the, off the record conversations. I, and that wasn't how I chose to, 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 to carry out the majority of my interviews. From the very outset, it was always going to be a study that looked at how external stakeholders were responding to the Gates Foundation, rather than trying to base it on the internal perceptions of staff members there. But I did want to try to augment my discussions with external stakeholders with more interviews at the Foundation than I managed to get in the end. So I think there was some apt criticism of my book that pointed out, well, she didn't, she wasn't able to get on the inside and I think that's true that's a very fair criticism I do think there's a strong role for foundation staff to play but I ultimately think that we can't necessarily hope and expect change to come from the inside because the pressures when it comes to any sort of large organization the obstacles to creating serious change tend to be great and I, I know that as someone who works inside a university and is often very frustrated by the diktats or ideas of my upper management, but my own powerlessness is fairly acute and it's very hard to challenge decisions that I might find objectionable. So I think awareness is key. And one of the things I did talk about on one of the on the record interviews I carried out with a Gates Foundation staff member is I really tried to get his perspective on the reality of the fact that so much of the endowment of the foundation, particularly at that time that I spoke with him, which was about 2012 or 2013, so many, so much of the endowment was invested in industries and specific companies that were um, obviously playing a role to a large degree in some some unclear messaging surrounding the links between, say, soft drinks consumption and global obesity. So just to give an example, at one point in the Gates Foundation's history, it had about an 80% stake in Coca-Cola. And through its collaborations were Berkshire Hathaway, which is the holding company owned by Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett it's someone who's himself has contributed a lot of money to the Gates Foundation. So he pledged $30 billion towards the Gates Foundation back in 2006. And much of that pledge, much of that money is coming in the form of shares in his Berkshire Hathaway company. And back in 2012, 2013, not only did the Gates Foundation have a huge stake itself in Coca-Cola, but Berkshire Hathaway was one of the largest owners of Coca-Cola stock in the world. And therefore, once all of Berkshire Hathaway's pledged stock to the Gates Foundation was fully transferred, a process taking place in incremental stages, the Gates Foundation was positioned to be the largest shareholder of Coca-Cola in the world. So larger than any 
institutional investor larger than any pension fund, larger than any individual, the Gates Foundation was poised and positioned to be the largest shareholder of Coca-Cola. This alarmed a lot of people in the global health community because there's been clear evidence of Coca-Cola's tendency to, say, fund scientific work that tries to disprove or to dispute the link between excessive calorie consumption and obesity. So because the the Coca-Cola plays an obviously, at times, nefarious role when it comes to trying to curb public health problems surrounding growing the growing obesity crisis, you had the Gates Foundation investing in it extensively. Now, since then, the Gates Foundation has uh, divested itself of a lot of shares in some of its more objectionable assets. So it's gotten rid of its Coca-Cola shares. It's gotten rid of its McDonald's shares. It was also had a 7%. 7% of its endowment was invested in McDonald's. And it's offloaded a lot of that stock. And I think that possibly reasons for that, we can't know for certain because the Gates Foundation has a policy to never comment publicly on its um, investment choices. But I think it's because of, of a response to growing public criticism that may well have been quite strong inside the foundation because that is something that I, I perceived between the lines of what this person was, speak, was telling me when I spoke on the record with them. And when I say behind the lines, between the lines, that's important because he never actually came out and said verbally that there was dissent within the foundation about investment choices. But and, and that's one of the reasons I didn't write about it in the book, because I had nothing concrete to work with. But my hint, my intuition was was that there was growing displeasure. And I think that that can play a strong role. But that said, that person I spoke with has now left the foundation. The other individual I spoke with has also left the foundation. So it's just the sheer staff turnover at some of these large foundations make it difficult for individual actors to necessarily have a strong directional influence on policy setting. I do think, especially at the Gates Foundation, a lot of internal decision making is coming in a very top-down manner from the executives at the top. When you talk about uh, influence on decision-making, and earlier you talked about external stakeholders as being the the primary perspective uh, from which you wanted to approach this book, let me ask you a question about, for example, say, the parent of of a child at a charter school that's largely funded by by the Gates Foundation or or any any foundation, or a woman... um, say, who's involved in a mobile microfinance program uh, in Ghana, also funded by the same foundation, whether it's Gates or not. How, in your, you know, in your investigation or from what you understand, how would these people actually participate in, in giving feedback, in, uh, you know, positive feedback or negative feedback in approaching policy shifts or policy changes in, in doing what they would do in, in, in a democratic environment, which would be to vote, or in a market environment, which would be to either purchase or not purchase a product? ways that people can voice dissent and concern for an organization's operating practices. But essentially, you've hit upon what what many economists and, and public policy specialists see as the accountability problem of large foundations. As you said, when it comes to 
a democratic regime, at least in practice, constituents have a contractual right as part of the social contract between citizens and states. There's a, a constituent ability to object to policies by writing their, their representative and requesting some sort of change. Now, whether or not that practice is actually achieves practical outcomes after a dis, an objection is voiced is, is always debatable. But you have, from a legislative perspective, an inbuilt right to redress to some sort of form of, um, of accountability, at least the demand for accountability. Whether accountability is granted or not is questionable. When it comes to market actors, the theory goes is that people vote with their purchasing power, shareholders vote with their investment choices, uh, corporations are subjected to often quite clear regulatory restraints on what they can or can't do if they produce certain externalities, which is um, an, un an unintended consequences of a core business practice. So an, an, external, an externality might be, say, the pollution of a, of a region or an environment that, that stemmed from a certain manufacturing process. And corporations are responsible for those externalities. Well, short of breaching a law, um, a foundation has no similar inbuilt accountability mechanism in place. So there's very little that a constituent, they're not even, you can't even call someone affected by, say, a charter school funded by the Case Foundation. You can't call them a constituent because they're not part of a recognizable polity that requires some sort of contractual response between the governed and the, gover and the, and the governor. Okay, so a word like constituent doesn't apply, but they are in some ways um, affected by the activities of this organization, which has a bearing on their life. So it's a good question. I don't necessarily know the response because, as I say, there's very little that they can do, but um, they, they can and they have managed to develop a sort of civil society pushback against certain activities funded by large foundations. So you have a lot of a lot of dispute and debate in the realm of the nonprofit world, which sees different civil society actors often pitted against each other, and perhaps that level of antagonism or debate is in some ways at least fruitful for generating more legitimacy surrounding the opportunity for dissent itself. At least it makes it clear to people that yes, there are people who, who at times feel negatively harmed by the policies of a foundation. And yes, even if clear legal avenues of redress are not apparent to them or are non-existent, they are still going to try to make their displeasure clear through, through collectively organizing with other civil society actors. And I see that a lot, especially in the public health, public health realm and the world of public education in the United States, where you've seen a huge momentum growing and a huge backlash from parent groups, teacher organizations, civil liberty organizations that are worried about the use of um, student data um, for, for profitable ends through certain new digital schemes that are partly financed by the Gates Foundation. You've seen this huge backlash against the outsized role that foundations play over reshaping public health practices. 
So this is where you do see a lot of the activity take place. And what do you think? What's your do you, do you do you sense yourself that a, a certain level of public scrutiny or, or or backlash is is in a way growing in the United States, or is the or in your mind does it seem largely a situation of silence? I'm not sure. You know, part of the reason I I wanted to interview you on on your book is is because I do think that there's a a silence on this topic in particular. Um, not only in the realm of, of criticism, but just independent voices that are weighing in on on the role of foundations. Uh, I think there's a lot more space for it. I think there's there's a need for it. Um, we we have the language uh, for the public sector and the private sector, as you said. They are not always effective. Uh, they're often very flawed. Uh, but I think we're at a moment where having more of this kind of conversation, talking specifically about foundations. Uh, but also actually transnational agencies, other institutions that play play a similar role in in, in governing global global issues um, is something that I think is, is quite ripe, uh, especially right now the year the year that we're in when when new sustainable development goals, for example, have been declared or will will be declared throughout the year. Um, as we wrap up, though, we're, we're coming to our time now. I, I really want to thank you so much uh, for taking the time today. Um, and, and before we do close out, uh, can, can, can we hear a bit about what you're working on now or what, what is the next you know, chapter in this conversation as far as you're concerned? There's a number of different directions that I'm taking moving forward. Theoretically, I mentioned earlier that I I try as a sociologist uh, to work often with certain abstract concepts in order to try to, in some ways, develop a new vocabulary for trying to talk about private foundation influence. Because I think what you just said is is really really crucial. We we've got certain recognized ways of describing a governmental responsibility to its constituents, words like the social contract, okay? We've got words for understanding how the private sector fosters different checks on the performance the performances of different private companies, things like purchasing power, um, consumer activism, shareholder scrutiny. You've got ways of legitimating and expanding the sphere of contestation by verbalizing the different avenues that people can take in order to object to some sort of influence, which is in some ways restraining or affecting their individual autonomy as well as the welfare of their community. When it comes to foundation influence, even the vocabulary is in, in, is in a way in its infancy because we have, don't, it, it's such a distinctive actor that isn't simply amalgamation, uh, it isn't simply a combination of these two spheres, it's an entirely different sort of actor that is not in any way beholden to the same sort of political or legal checks that other actors face. And so I'm trying to develop different forms of speaking about these foundations that in some ways helps to further or expand the vocabulary. And one of the phrases I'm working with, in part with a colleague, Darren Thiel, I talk about new forms of charismatic advantage 
as well as a term that we're expanding up what we've coined that might so sound a little bit strong, but we're talking about a notion that we describe as charismatic violence. And we define charismatic violence as the symbolic way that through appearing to be selfless, an actor can impose itself into new realms without legitimate rebuke or challenge from constituents who are in some ways impaired through the appearance of being uplifted, okay? So let me just repeat that last part because I, it was a bit jumbled. But what we're trying to get at is the, is the violence, and we use it in a very symbolic sense. We're drawing on people like the work of Pierre Bourdieu, who talks a lot about different forms of capital, social and cultural capital, as well as how people can be structurally, how people can be structurally disadvantaged when they don't possess certain forms of recognized cultural assets. In the UK, the paradigmatic example is having a upper class accent often fosters in a hearer's mind the assumption that you are somehow um, morally superior or more intelligent simply because of how you speak rather than what you're saying. So Bourdieu would have seen that as an instance of symbolic violence, the symbol being the association of a, of a good accent with intelligence, even when it's not warranted. And drawing on these more abstract concepts like symbolic violence, we're trying to apply that to the realm of philanthropy by talking about this notion of charismatic violence. And what we mean, just to reiterate again, by charismatic violence is the ways that certain avenues of redress are prevented through the nature of a gift, but also how certain relationships of hierarchy are in some ways cemented and entrenched through acts that seem to dissipate them, through acts that seem to uplift the recipient, but in some ways might impair the recipient from contesting the different structures, structures and activities that are disempowering them. So this is how we're using that notion, and we're really at the very start of, I think, an, an exciting uh, period of intense work where we can generate hopefully a few good articles on this topic and, and mostly get them circulating in the academic community, but hopefully with a larger public salience. A bit more, speaking a bit more, speaking a bit more practically about the next imperial, empirical stage of data collection, I'm actually developing a more historical project that's trying to talk about something that I very, very briefly talked about earlier in the interview, and that's this question of just what does the financial sector contribute to the wider economy? How much of the financial sector's activities uh, emerge, are centered on actual uh, observable value creation, where they're creating more goods or opportunities for other individuals, and how much of it is generated through pure rents thinking, which is something that had a lot more public salience in the 19th century than it does today. Back in the 19th century, the time of people like Karl Marx, as well as less radical, but still quite influential thinkers like William Morris, who was himself a revolutionary socialist who was disappointed by the ways that private enterprise often seemed to foster wealth gaps and, and disempower the poor. You talked about things like unearned wealth, the question of whether or not people will, rich individuals were in many ways obtaining a lot of their fortune through political, 
mechanisms that enabled them to extract wealth rather than through um, the creation of legitimate forms of value that actually had collective benefits. And so I think in the 21st century, we need to resuscitate a language surrounding rent extraction, surrounding rent seeking, which I see bubbling up in a lot of different places, but which I don't think has yet hit the mainstream. And so trying to convey this problem of rent sinking more clearly to a wider public is my next major book project. Well, thank you so much. I look forward to reading that book as well. Um, it was a really interesting conversation today. And as I said before, uh, it, you know, regardless of the specific uh, pros and cons of any individual book, I, I do I do like seeing more discussion and more critical discussion, especially on this topic. Uh, so thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Anna, very much.